0: On today's episode of Turning Season Podcast, with Charles Upton, a land restoration consultant involved in rehydrating watersheds, regenerating soil, and ensuring the long-term vitality of human communities.
1: It feels good to go out and do something that you know has a positive impact at a local level. But recently, these larger conversations about this larger potential climate impact is very exciting, But I I come back to where I started and it's like, well, I know that if I can dig a rain garden and I can infiltrate water here and grow vegetation, I can make an impact in this specific place. And that's what I would love to help get across to younger folks because they just don't, they don't have that part of the, uh, it doesn't seem like they have very many people helping them with that part of the story.
0: That was Charles Upton in the conversation you'll hear today, talking about his work with water and land management and the sense of possibility and agency he has to make a positive impact wherever he is. In contrast to the sense that many young people today, and many of all of us, the sense that many have that the future looks grim and there's nothing we can do to affect that. Charles has years of experience working with water around the world, and I'm excited for you to get a glimpse of what he does in the big picture sense, and also what he does with his own two hands on the ground, and why he's moved to play his role in The Great Turning in this way. Thank you for clicking play on this episode of Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope in The Great Turning bringing you news and deep conversations about our adventure toward a life-honoring, life-sustaining way of being human on Earth. This show is for everyone who's awake to our multiple crises, feels their love for life on Earth, and chooses to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm a facilitator of the work that reconnects, an acupuncturist and dream worker, and a believer in the power of conversation. This podcast is one way the great turning happens through me. Welcome and thank you for being here. I connected with Charles because we are both members of the Earth Regenerators community, which I mentioned in the last news episode. Toward the end of this conversation, you'll get to hear Charles talk about his time in Barichara, Colombia, and describe the way the clouds currently drift away from a sort of heat island. If you've heard of an urban heat island where pavement makes the air hotter and drier and the lack of vegetation means we don't have the cooling effect of trees and other plants, and this pushes the clouds away from urban areas and prevents fog and rainfall. There's a place in Barichara that's sort of a rural heat island because of deforestation, So Charles talks about how tending to the flow of water there, slowing it, sinking it into the ground, restoring the forest can bring back the rain. He also says something that really caught my attention. He said that the technical aspect of bringing back rain, waterfalls, rivers, and forest is relatively simple, which is awesome to hear. Simple compared to the social and political aspects of making that happen. If this all sparks your interest, I also recommend the first episode of the Earth Regenerators podcast, where founder Joe Brewer talks about this in more detail and explains how regenerating human friendship between neighbors and community members is as essential as techniques to regenerate land and water, to rehydrate the landscape. And he also talks about how what they're doing there, stream bed by stream bed in Barichara, can be done across the whole region, across whole continents, and around the planet. I'll link to that podcast episode in the show notes, which are at turningseason.com episode 21. You'll also find links there to connect with Charles, learn about other regenerative projects he mentions, and to learn more about my upcoming Work That Reconnects program, woven together with the wisdom of Chinese medicine on how our emotions and our physical health connect. This is a 12-week small group journey called Healing Season, starting in January. And again, you can find the link at turningseason.com episode 21. All right, enjoy this conversation. My guest today is Charles Upton. Charles is a land restoration consultant with Oso Eco working to renew the human ecosystem connection through a combination of permaculture design, on-site water management, things like rainwater harvesting, gray water reuse and water retention landscapes. Also applied microbiology like Korean natural farming, as well as natural building techniques. Charles's work is inspired by the traditional water wisdom of indigenous desert people around the world. He's lived with the Bedouin in the Arabian Peninsula, studied traditional water systems in Rajasthan, India, and worked with communities in the Mojave and Sonoran Deserts in the Southwest USA. He holds a Master's of Science in Integrated Water Management from the International Water Center in Australia. Charles is fascinated by cycles, specifically the water cycle, carbon cycle, nitrogen cycles, and he believes the bicycle is the greatest human invention. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to hear all about all of these techniques and understandings that you have about water. Before we jump into that, I want to get to have more of a glimpse into you and what motivates you and brings you to everything that you're doing. So we'll start with open sentences from the work that reconnects, and we'll start with gratitude. You can finish this sentence however you like. Some things I love about being alive on earth are?
1: Well, there are a lot of things I enjoy about being alive. I think exploring um, new knowledge, uh, wild places, um, exploring landscapes or exploring new knowledge, um, just curiosity
0: is uh, what really gets me excited about being alive. Awesome. Thank you. And how about this one? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? Hmm.
1: Well, I I mean, obviously, when you look around and you see uh, ecosystems that are struggling or suffering or destroyed, that's uh, very difficult. Um, I think seeing the disconnect that a lot of people uh, have from place. It's very difficult for me to see. Um, that sort of breaks my heart, and I think that's something that uh, can be renewed. I guess so. Maybe that's particularly painful because it has so much potential to be better there. Um, but uh, what really breaks my heart, I guess, is some of the younger people that I work with and how they're growing up at the messaging that they're getting and how different it is from, uh, how I grew up, which wasn't terribly long ago. Um, and so hopefully being able to sort of provide some sort of small amount of agency in their life. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hear you. Thank you for that. I'm um, I'm curious actually to hear a little bit more about that. I think that will lead into this bigger question about the three stories of our time, but what what do you mean by the messaging younger people are getting and, and providing agency?
1: Well, I mean, um, you know, I, I work quite a bit in California. That's where I grew up and was born. Um, we've had catastrophic wildfires for the last few years. Um, and this has sort of been climate change in this very real, tangible in your face sort of way. Um, and the the, the sort of message that a lot of these high school students I've been working with seem to be getting is that there is, there is no future, um, which is absolutely just crushing. It's heartbreaking, and I, I have such a difficult time imagining what that high school experience would be like, comparing it to mine, which seems so, you know, carefree in a way, um, but um. You know, and, and I, I, I think, you know, in California, places that have been directly impacted uh, by fires and this sort of thing, it's very in your face. Um, but younger people everywhere are sort of feeling this climate grief, even if they don't have a name for it. I think there's this underlying feeling of problems. Uh, and like I said, that's not, it's not exactly how I grew up and that wasn't so long ago.
0: Yeah, I think that in terms in the the language of Joanna Macy's around the three stories of our time, there's that first story of business as usual, which I think you and I were the, the cultural messaging when we were in high school. I'm not sure how close to the same time it was, but I think it was, you know, in this earlier uh, chapter where it was mostly business as usual messaging, maybe you like me were Questioning that business as usual perspective, but that's what we were sort of raised to expect. And then there's the story that what you're referring to now is, I would say, is part of the story of the great unraveling, that everything is falling apart. And that's what a lot of young people are seeing as the story of what's going on. So then the third possible story that we call the great turning, that this is a time of transition and a shift in consciousness, a shift in the way we live, a time of protecting ecosystems and each other is a third possible story. I think all three are happening at the same time. But I wonder what you think about the idea of those three stories, how you relate to that or, or where you find yourself in those.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I grew up with that business as usual story. Absolutely. And I guess going all the way back, there was something that didn't fit quite perfectly in there for me. And so there was that a piece of the unraveling happening. Really what I'm motivated in trying to do and what I'd like to do is help that story around the great turning and then help provide some agency. Um, so in my own journey, you know I did an undergraduate degree in international relations um, finished that and was pretty depressed really with that with that course of study it really get, highlighted a lot of the problems of the world uh, without providing any sort of solution um, and it was sort of when I discovered water as something that could be done and the agency and the the it, just, it feels good to go out and do something that you know has a positive impact at a local level. Recently, these larger conversations about this larger potential climate impact is very exciting, but I, I come back to where I started and it's like, well, I know that if I can dig a rain garden and I can infiltrate water here and grow vegetation, I can make an impact in this specific place. And that's what I would love to help get across to younger folks because they just don't they don't have that part of the, uh, it doesn't seem like they have very many people helping them with that part of the story.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think you're right. I think you and I spoke a few days ago about direct actions in the streets and those are very valuable and important, but it's like, that's an action to get the people who have power to do something, but where are the levers of power that we just have? Like you just said, just by infiltrating more water in and relating to the rain differently, so that I can grow food right where I am, isn't that a powerful action? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, was, I'm I'm super inspired by just by the doing. Um, you know, and one of my mentors, uh, Brad Lancaster, you know, I- inspiring in that he he went out and he just he just started doing started cutting the curb in front of his house and, and pulling water off the street. So he was reducing the flooding and uh, growing native trees and all these things. Uh, the city was quite upset with him, but then he just kept doing it. And now it's the standard practice. So I really believe in that, that, that sort of action piece um, and not being uh, sort of paralyzed by, by a never ending conversation when we, we know we can do good, good work.
0: Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you alluded to this a minute ago that there's maybe a bigger climate story also to this, the work that you're doing with water. I wonder if you could give us a little education on that, that the idea that these wildfires, which, as you said, are climate change right in our faces, but also that there might be something about how we are handling water and urban environments right now that we could shift that might impact all that? Can you tell us a little bit about how you understand that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, And I think California is a great example uh, for the rest of the world, Um, but it's very similar to, you know, um, Southern Mediterranean countries in Europe or Australia um, that are also having these similar sort of problems with fires. But really, the, the big underlying problem is we've dehydrated our landscapes, Um, And we've done that through paving over a lot of it. uh, And then we uh, deforested and removed a lot of the vegetation. So there's a large water cycle where water is coming off the ocean. And this is sort of the water cycle that, you know, I was taught in, you know, earth science in middle school or whenever it was. Um, So the water is coming off the ocean and then it comes up into the sky and clouds that precipitates down. And then it flows back into the ocean um, so this is the big water cycle uh, and now what we understand is there's also a small water cycle and that small water cycle when it rains on a landscape you have uh, water that is going to be cycling uh, locally it's going to be cycling within the within the canopy so from the soil up into the canopy of the trees and then back down or within that watershed um, so as we taken away a lot of this vegetation and we paved over areas that water isn't able to get into the ground. And then we disrupted this small water cycle that is holding on to this water. And we are understanding now is incredibly important. So sort of on this larger scale, we dehydrated the Western United States, and which is then leading sort of to these fires. Um, the silver lining there is when we understand These processes and what we've done over the last you know 150 years of sort of of land management or so uh, since the Europeans have been there we can actually reverse that we can target we we understand how we can sort of fix these things uh, through infiltrating water through removing pavement uh, green infrastructure um, all these sorts of things and then have a localized impact that's that's Positive and beneficial where we have more vegetation, we can lower urban heat island effect, um, create more wildlife habitat, all these things uh, that are really beneficial at a local level, uh, and then there's also a lot of people that are starting to think that there's a much bigger potential for sort of climate mitigation and Walter Yeney out of uh, CSIRO in Australia uh, he believes that um, a 4% increase in soil organic matter, um, could actually, you know, basically stop the cooling of the planet. I know a lot of people disagree with that. Uh, but for me, I sort of am focused in that local work and I know that it works at a local level and I've seen it work. Um, and so then that's what I focus on. And then if there's A potential that this could also be doing this much greater thing if we're doing it at scale uh, that's just very exciting that's like extra on top so
0: yeah yeah it's very exciting I mean when I first was hearing about this idea that our urban heat islands and the pavement might be affecting how much fog comes in towards the redwoods and how we're we are or aren't Letting the ground absorb the rain that comes down affects how hydrated the trees are. So do you see the local projects that you're doing? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of your past or current projects. I'm wondering how the projects that you can do where people are living, if you see those connecting to the forests also, where so many of these fires have been just massive forest fire, huge amounts of area. And I know you've, you've said you're really focused on the local work, which I want to hear all about. I'm going to stay one more moment on this bigger question. Like, do you think that, do you see how that's connected kind of protecting the larger forest areas from burning in such a hot, destructive way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've had fire as part of the natural ecosystem, you know, on the West coast of uh, the United States for a long time. And we, you know, there's a lot more attention um, given now to sort of these uh, traditional practices of burning um, and how Indigenous people manage the landscape. Um, you know, from uh, what I've heard is that Indigenous people in California, sort of the idea of a wild place was sort of a, had a negative connotation because that was somewhere that wasn't managed by people. You know, somewhere where people didn't really go. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we've sort of had this, hands-off approach to management like they're doing very little management in a lot of places and then we have a if you look at you know Yosemite is a great place to look at we have pictures you know 100 years ago of what Yosemite Valley looked like and if you look at the density of the trees there it's very very different Um, so when we go there now and kind of these uh, fairly recent growth fairly uh, densely packed you know you know, pines and and that sort of thing. But if you look at these older pictures, they're much larger, larger meadows, essentially, they were then burned out with these large trees with big spaces in between. Going back to these, these burning practices and thinning, it can make a a big difference. Um, As far as the fires, moisture content is one of the most important things when you're looking at how fast a fire spreads. So if you have a huge amount of fuel, standing fuel, and it's well hydrated. So You could have a, you know, nice vegetation, that's quite nice. It doesn't burn very well. Uh, what we've been seeing these, these giant sort of mega fires is that they're burning really, really hot. Um, and that's essentially because this fuel isn't very well hydrated. So the more that we can be hydrating our landscapes all over, the better off we're going to be as far as this fire risk. Um, and I think something else you're kind of getting to is that we're now living in the forest, so our urban wildland interface is, is sort of uh, continually expanding. So mm-hmm. areas that 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 were previously, oh, we we could go and sort of manage them in this way and burn them. They now have a suburb there. Uh-huh. So, uh It's a it's a little bit different, but um, there's been you know, growing attention and people are interested in in taking on like their cul-de-sac sort of taking ownership for the grassland behind their cul-de-sac and and doing a cultural burn, engaging with indigenous people um, and hearing more and more about uh, indigenous groups stepping up to help facilitate this sort of thing, um, which is really exciting and, and fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's so exciting. And what a cool evolution of the thinking from this myth that a wild place left alone is somehow, you know, the kind of it's better off without us notion to this way of you know knowing that some tending is called for and traditional indigenous ecological knowledge and practices have a lot to teach us. So, speaking of that, I would love to hear I'm going to just ask a pretty open question and see what's exciting to you to talk about about your time in the Arabian Peninsula or what you have learned in general from indigenous desert practices with water. Is there anything you want to share about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, loads. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I first sort of really became fascinated by water when I was on a climbing trip in the Middle East. And I, was, uh, I spent quite a bit of time down in Wadi Rum in southern Jordan on the Saudi Arabian border. And I was um, you know, spending a lot of time with these uh, Beidou guys and was entirely dependent on them, I realized, uh, to know where there was a certain puddle of water behind a certain rock very far out in the desert. Um, and this was really sort of started me on my my journey of realizing, understanding how important water was um which then led me to do my the field work for my for my master's in 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 rajasthan and i guess the I, i went to rajasthan really interested in the technical systems thinking like oh wow like they're digging you know some some type of different well or they're doing some sort of different engineering type thing in order to manage this water and there is some of that that they have some interesting technical solutions but really uh in, in the Middle East and in, in, you know, all through you know, Iran and all the, all the way through into, into India, the real thing that I noticed and found out was that there's a cultural value to water. So the, the amount of respect and these, all these different cultural values that are ingrained into the culture have these very real sort of public health and uh, water management components to them. Um, which, which I thought was just really interesting. It wasn't what I expected to find. I thought I was going to go look at a bunch of wells. Uh, and in the end, it was sort of realizing how deep the culture was and how much it respected water uh, above just about everything else. So um, one example of that that I think is really interesting is in Rajasthan, I was told that if you were a guest, you would be given a glass of water while the host would drink a glass of milk. And that's because water has a higher value than milk, because you can use water for all sorts of different things, including one of those things might be giving it to your cow. The cow can give you milk. So the milk has lesser value. So then, as a sign of respect to the guest, you'd be given a glass of water, and then the host would drink a glass of milk. Mm. Um, but these just, uh, no, that's just one example, but these cultural pieces are are very very deep in the culture the value of water the importance of it um you know that was what really was my biggest takeaway not so much the, the technical engineering pieces uh-huh. and then i guess applying that to the west um you know you go to california and 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 people don't often think about where their water is actually coming from it's coming out of the tap well where does it come from before that and they're not really uh, putting these values, valuing it, um, in my opinion, as highly as they should. Uh, it's also the financial component to it. they're They're not really paying very much for it either. So they
0: mm-hmm.
1: make them value it very much as well. But um yeah, so in these desert desert communities, uh, just the value of water is different. It's greater,
0: yeah, it's reminding me of like our disconnect with everything that we buy packaged you know, it's so easy to with food or with water to not really think about where it's coming from or to feel connected to the whole story of it. And definitely with packaged products, you know, that might have uh, a pretty ugly story behind them of extraction and Mm -hmm. underpaid struggling humans who made them, And you know, and just to find it in its package is like turning on your tap and having the water come out and you know you really don't have to know unless you want to know right i mean we should know in my opinion but yeah i'm thinking about how how disconnected we are from those stories so let me ask you this do you think it's possible to have an urban environment like a tucson or a phoenix i don't know maybe we should let vegas be its own yeah. subject but can we do that? Can we use water in a sustainable, you know, in a right relationship kind of way in a big population in the desert?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's very possible. And and when we start looking at this, I know Brad Lancaster is, is says there's more water that falls on the city of Tucson than is consumed in a year. I believe is what he said before. And wow, you you start actually doing the math on rainfall. Um, and you realize that there's a huge amount of very high quality water just falling out of the sky, it, you know, in a place like Tucson in the Sonoran Desert. Um, you know, you're getting this like winter storms off the Pacific and you get your kind of summer monsoon off, off of uh, the Gulf of Mexico. But it, it's just sort of managing this precipitation. Uh, same thing in Southern California. Um, when you actually start doing the math, um, there's an enormous amount of water. Uh, that we're not using terribly efficiently, but just falling from the sky. So a very uh, uh, sort of a simple calculation: a thousand square feet of catchment, um, one inch of rain is about 620 gallons of water. Um, so if you're kind of putting in that into context in you know the Mojave Desert, Joshua Tree averages about 10 inches of rain a year
0: Mm
1: -hmm. so then you're at you know 620 gallons for 10 inches on a thousand square feet you're already it's quite a lot of water already We're, we're getting into a situation where we wouldn't have enough storage or storage is becoming an issue um at that amount so on a sort of a normal kind of like very modest residential home um you know most anywhere in california the big the crux of it is finding where we can have enough storage for the amount of water we can capture, not actually mm-hmm. the amount of water that's coming down. Um, so, I think that we can do a lot, a lot more and really thinking about water budgets. So, what do we need? What is supply versus demand? And how do we balance that? Um, and then we can do various things to augment the supply, like rainwater harvesting, mm-hmm. right? So, this is sort of a, a water supply that. You know, a house or property didn't have before. We can go in and take the gutters and downspouts into tanks and have that water. You know, we can do things to uh, reduce the amount that's used through different efficient appliances. And then we can also reuse the water uh, multiple times. So, sort of using water that is fit for purpose. So, we don't need to have water at a potable standard for everything we do. Um, So, irrigating your landscape, you know, we don't need that water to be drinkable. So we can use gray water, sort of your lightly used water, um, and we can take water from our shower or sink or something like that, and then just run it outside and use that for irrigation. So it wouldn't be appropriate for drinking. It's been used to shower in, to bathe in, whatever it is, but it's totally appropriate to put it on your plants to irrigate. So trying to think, how can we use water as many times as possible? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I definitely I think there's a huge amount that could be done to make um, you know, Tucson and similar type communities uh more resilient around water.
0: And it sounds like from what you were saying earlier about the water cycle, if we did use all that gray water from showering or you know, even dishwashing and all these lighter uses and sunk it into the ground outside our homes in irrigation and gardens and everything that just that having a higher level of moisture in the soil is somehow a part of a a better hydrated rain cycle in the area. Am I understanding that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, instead of putting that water down the drain, which is going to go, you know, either into your city sewer, which then probably go to a wastewater treatment plant or possibly right into the ocean or into the rivers, something like that. Instead of having it go down there, we can make use of it, right? So um, kind of what I was saying before about fires and, and the importance of hydration for fuel loading. So we don't need to live in um, you know, these barren wastelands with defensible space. We can actually have green, well-hydrated vegetation around us, which is very pleasant to live in as well yeah. as providing habitat and all these other benefits.
0: Yeah. This is great, I love it. Going back to what you said at the very beginning about the story that young people or even all of us are being told, which is sort of this gloomy we are running out of water story uh, that doesn't doesn't feel like we have much agency in that. like fire, huge fires are burning and we're running out of water. What am I going to do about that? But then you have these very concrete human scale household scale things that, that show us we do have some agency in the whole thing.
1: I, I, the running out of water piece, you know, it, it's, it sort of makes me cringe a bit um, because we have a finite amount of water on the planet and we're cycling it. So there's no, we have no, there's no concern about running out of water. Uh, Uh We do have a quality and the distribution and the management issue. Absolutely. Um, But we're not going to run out, you know, it's just, it's all just moving around a little bit differently at the moment. So.
0: <laughs> yes. Good point. And it's all recycled, right? There's no, should we use recycled water either, right? There's no uh, other kind yeah, of water. It's all
1: recycled. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep.
0: Okay. So what are you working on right now or any recent projects, past projects that have, that make great stories? I'd love to hear about some of the on the ground projects you're doing.
1: Sure. Yeah. We've there's lots going on. So. Um, they are doing recently more education work, so with high school students as well as starting these uh, workshops, so that we're actually teaching uh, watershed restoration techniques, um, and and really trying to get this out as information as well as teach people how to do it. You know, so um, that's quite exciting. Um, as far as specific projects, um, we're working with. uh the Hotlam Mount Shasta Eco-Restoration Camp, which is quite an exciting site. That's up in Northern California, almost into Oregon on the side of Mount Shasta. It's another fire restoration site. The site burned the lava fire last year and then was hit by an atmospheric river directly after. So it's kind of like the the one-two punch that you don't want to get. So that's the site that we're starting to work on. And we're going to be planting a lot of trees there and working to build up the soil as much as we can it's very low organic matter. I don't know is there anything specific about that project you'd like to know about?
0: Yeah maybe or the you, yeah I know you have something going on in Southern California as well. I guess I'm because this is fairly new to me and I'm sure completely new to a lot of listeners. I'm curious about some of the actual things that you build and techniques that you use and what it looks sure. like to take a landscape from not very uh, water wise to what you're working on turning it into. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on, on a site, you know, um, like the Hotlum site uh, it's about 120 acres. So it, it's a, a large site that has no structures on it at all. So we're not doing anything involving rainwater harvesting cisterns or graywater reuse or anything like that, uh, as we might do on a site that has structures. So really the big principle of what we're trying to do is look how water moves over the landscape. And then the, the principle that we're trying to apply is we wanna slow that water down and we wanna spread it out and then infiltrate it as much as we can. So essentially when we have a, a fast, narrow flow of water, it's very erosive. So anytime we have that fast moving water and these steep cuts in a, in a bank, that's that we're, we're sort of not making um, use of that water to as best as we can. So anytime that we can take that water and, and slow down that really erosive flow, uh, we try and do that um, and spread it out and then get it in the ground. Uh, we do that through using rocks, you know, whatever we have on site, possibly wood. Take a lot of cues from beaver so um beaver are sort of natural engineers of the watershed. Um well, we've known this for quite a long time and, and beaver just can't stand the the sound of running water, you know. So anytime there's moving water, they just, you know, workaholics, right? They just can't <laughs> handle it. And so they've gotta go and stop it. Uh-huh. So so beaver are constantly cutting down trees and blocking up streams and you know. Ranchers and farmers find them quite annoying because they'll oftentimes block up their culvert, right? Which is kind of a pain. Um, So they kind of get a bad rap there. But what they're really doing on these landscapes is they're slowing that water down and spreading it out in these big ponds so it can then infiltrate and then it's made available for all this vegetation. So they're doing an incredible job of rehydrating landscapes. So we sort of think how we can be the beaver, essentially. That if we don't have beaver in a landscape, well, how can we um, be creating structures that are are mimicking what a beaver would be doing there um, so that we can rehydrate it? So that might be, you know, stacking logs in a way, sort of in a a beaver dam analog. Um, If we have a lot of rocks on site, we might be doing check dams. So using rocks in the channel to slow the water down, spread it out. Yeah. So those are sort of the main, main techniques there. And then um, around some of the plantings, uh, starting to do you know, more Korean natural farming uh, where we're uh, cultivating microorganisms from the soil and brewing up compost teas so that we're trying to uh, add the correct microbiology when we're planting. Um, so that sort of thing as well.
0: So that was that's a really cool idea. Will you explain that a little bit more, how you get the correct microbiology for a certain spot?
1: Sure. So um, we're looking at a site we're sort of thinking about the stages of secession um, where you're going from you know essentially grassland essentially up to a climax forest, right? And there's this whole stage. And then within the soil, as over time it will mature into this climax forest, you have Uh, changes in the soil biology. So, and very generally, we sort of start and a very disturbed site is going to be bacterially dominant. You have your your bacteria and your fungal ratio. On a very disturbed site, we're going to be more bacterially dominant. And then in that climax forest, we're going to be fungally dominant. And uh, depending what we want the site to be doing, um, we can kind of target where we'd like that soil microbiology to be. So uh, if we're going to be doing something like uh, row crops. We're going to be looking more to be in sort of 50-50 range. If we're doing an agroforestry system. We'd like it to be more fungally dominant. Um, so uh, just really understanding that, that that soil is alive and and dirt is not. So we say dirt is inert and, and soil is living. What the microbes in the soil can do for us is incredible. So as far as, oh, this tree needs some trace mineral um, and through these incredible pathways, it can talk to all these soil microbes that will essentially then go mine it and bring it and make it available. So uh, so moving out of this sort of chemical NPK, we're just gonna dose the soil with with the chemistry Um, really if we can cultivate that biology uh, it's enormously more beneficial for the plants
0: so cool the the holistic medicine thinker in me is just loving all of this sort of holistic thinking about soil and water on the micro and macro scales it makes so much sense what a it's funny that we have thought so differently for so long and, and broken it up in, in really not a very effective way. I, before we close, I want to have one and a half more questions for you. <laughs> one is we, we connected through Earth Regenerators, and I know you recently went to Barichara, Colombia, where the they're cultivating a bioregional regenerative economy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's anything about your experience there or what you see going on there, maybe specific to water, but if there's something else you're excited about that you want to share, I just would invite you to talk about your experience there.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think Barichara is an incredibly exciting project. And the, the, the thing that gets me really, really excited about it is this big sort of potential climate mitigation impact component. Um, that, you know, working at a small scale, working at these local scales, well, what if we do this at a big enough scale? Can we make this big impact? And then so uh, going down to Barichara and sort of seeing the landscape there uh, helped me really understand and get me really excited about that potential. So to just kind of paint a bit of a picture, um, Barichara is in the Northern Andes in Colombia. About about 1400 meters or so, so not incredibly high. Uh, it's sort of more in, up into the foothills of the Andes. And it was uh, an area that was deforested um, for tobacco roughly 50, 60 years ago. Prior to being deforested, you know, it had you know the tropical dry forest, a quite incredible mature climax forest there. Uh, since the deforestation, they have less rain now, essentially, and you can even see it. So you have this area that sort of has reduced vegetation and there's hot, dry air just coming up and you can see across the valley that there's a cloud forest. You can see in the mountains that there's raining and it's very wet uh, just, just across the way. And you can even see these clouds coming across and then they hit this column of hot, dry air and they just sh- shoot up. Wow. Um, so the, the, the big idea is that if we can reforest, revegetate enough of this area, we can cool down that column of hot air and it'll actually allow the rain to come back in. So uh, to me, that's incredibly exciting and that's yeah. sort of the potential of what we could do at a larger scale. If we're really thinking in this way at scale, I mean, and then how do we, how do you do that? How do you, work at a 500 hectare scale well you're not working on one person's private property that's for sure you're working with lots of different stakeholders um and and again it comes back to education piece and this, it's a very big social experiment and project to to try and get this to happen mm-hmm.
0: the,
1: the, the sort of the technical piece at least for me feels quite simple and attainable compared to the larger social political component of what is needed to actually put that in place. Right. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, Barichara is incredibly exciting. You know, in a few years, if we can see waterfalls flow that haven't been flowing for 10 years, that's a, that's a real win. And I think that's a win that is, people can understand, uh, if there's something very tangible there that it's, You know, 20 years ago, uh, I've lived here my entire life. 20 years ago, I remember when this river was flowing, when this stream was flowing and this waterfall was flowing. I used to swim here when I was a child and now it's dry. But if we can make it come back, that's got a very powerful story attached to it that I think is inspiring and hopefully would have more people want to do this all over the place and show that it's possible. So... I think that's that's really what uh, you know. Colombia is very exciting. We've seen that we can do this in some very very difficult environments in the world. Some of the most uh, some of the hardest environments. Uh, Neil Spackman, with the Albaida project in Saudi Arabia, has shown what's possible. You know, Jeff Lawton in Jordan, greening the desert. Um, those are just two examples. You know, very 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 difficult, super arid sites. Um, Barichara is is. Uh, it's not as difficult from a technical perspective, but there are a lot more people living in there. So it has this extra um, complexity of, of community. And how do you make a forest that works for people as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is crucial for us to fully engage with if this is a larger scale process yeah. yeah yeah that is so exciting. I love the image you just described of being able to see the rain and the cloud forest and the the column of hot air because I think that is gives a good visual for what's happening over our cities too and how hopeful that would really be to see a waterfall flowing again. so I'll I'll link in the show notes to more information about all these projects you just mentioned too greening the desert and these different regenerative sites. And my other half question is just, is there anything else before I find out how everyone can connect with you and all that good stuff? Is there anything else on your mind that you want to share?
1: Hmm. Just thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to talk and and putting this information out there. you know i I sort of started from a a place of being excited by the technical aspects of these systems and and now I've moved into more education after realizing I was having the same conversation with almost every single client that I was working with. Uh-huh. Um, so just thank you so much for for this platform and um, inviting me on here.
0: Well, my pleasure, truly. Thank you for making the time and sharing all of this fantastic information and stories. If anyone is local and wants to connect with you about, workshops or work on their property, what's the best way to connect with you?
1: Sure. My website is osoeco.co. So O-S-O-E-C-O dot co, And all my contact information is on there.
0: Okay, perfect. I will put that link in the show notes as well. Thank you again so much, Charles. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for listening. Be sure to visit the show notes for this episode at turningseason.com slash episode 21 for all the links to Charles Upton's website, the Earth Regenerators podcast episode I mentioned in the beginning, more truly amazing land regeneration projects, and all the info about Healing Season, the program I'm hosting starting in January, which supports your health, healing, and you rising to your role in The Great Turning by weaving the work that reconnects with practical wisdom from Chinese medicine. I'll be back with your next dose of active hope in the form of a quick news episode on the new moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.